All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 142, The Failed Dynastic Politics of Mercia and Northumbria. Now, as you know, this show is free and independent, and that's due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. So if you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can go over to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com and sign up as a member over there. It's pretty easy. Just follow the links to becoming a member or click on the picture of Hipster Hadrian with a pint of beer. And thank you very much to Christy, Dan, and Vanessa for contributing already. Now, today is going to be a little complex. It actually took me a while to put this one together because there are so many moving parts. But if you keep the theme in mind, you should be okay. And that theme is that the bloody dynastic politics in the Midlands and the North are really getting completely out of hand. Oh, and Wilfred is still Wilfred. All right, and as usual, we have some changes and nuttiness in Mercia and Northumbria. Really, all of the best stuff is happening up there. Though it is fun that when King Inna of Wessex took the throne, he made Kent pay a ware guild for the murder of Mull. You know, the brother of Caedwalla, who was a short-lived West Saxon king of Kent. Well, when he got murdered, it wasn't forgotten in Wessex, and so when King Inna became king, they had to go and pay a ware guild. But other than that, most of the really crazy stuff happening was in Mercia and Northumbria. So let's go there. And to start with, let's begin with Mercia. Now, as you might remember, Queen Osthrith had recently been murdered by the Mercian nobility and was buried at Bardney. And the murder might have happened because she was working to detach the Huissa from Mercian domination. And while we did talk a little bit about that, I got a few questions about it as well. So I thought I might talk a little bit more about how Mercia was organized so you'll better understand why that was such a big deal. Because this wasn't just a matter of greed and wanting to hold all the land. There is a plan here, and losing that sub-kingdom would have been a bit of a problem for Mercia. When talking about politics, things come back to issues of economies and geography. When food is your primary form of currency, you need smaller local governments than if you have a moneyed economy, which can support even empires. As we've spoken about in earlier episodes, issues with terrain could significantly impact the ability of a court to reliably travel and govern a large kingdom. So delegation seems to be the natural solution. And it looks like that was exactly what was going on in Mercia. It's even been argued that Mercia took this one step farther by having satellite provinces. And that's where the Huissa come into it. Satellite provinces, like the Huissa, were sub-kings that were under the control of Mercia, but who had their own kings ruling over them. Evidence of this can be found in Birtwald, the nephew of King Aethelred of Mercia, who seems to have been a sub-king on the borders of the Huissa and Wessex, and had enough clout to grant land to Aldhelm, the abbot of Malmesbury. And that same abbot received land in Gloucestershire from another family member of King Aethelred's, a noble by the name of Chenfrith. And that suggests that Mercia wasn't being ruled as an absolute monarchy, with Aethelred ruling over everything with an iron fist, but rather he had satellites, sub-kings, and administrators who had individual authority and who served him. And that would make sense given the size and scope of the kingdom that they were building and trying to govern. 
After all, a king needs to be able to make the rounds in order to collect his food rent and maintain his hold on power. But in a large kingdom, especially one with a variety of natural boundaries, that does become problematic, so carving it up and delegating makes a degree of sense. But as I said, the importance of these sub-kingdoms wasn't just built on income. These satellite kingdoms provide Mercia a very real benefit that they would have been eager to employ following the bloody years of the 7th century. They acted as buffers between the core kingdom of Mercia and her enemies. The thought is that the real kingdom of Mercia was centered at the Middle Trent, and then all around it were various buffer kingdoms. The Middle Angles, Huissa, and others could have been examples of this sort of buffer kingdom. Support of this can be found in the fact that we see Mercian royalty holding estates within these subkingdoms and handing out land grants, while these same regions seem to have had their own sub-rulers. And these seem to have been royal families with as long of a history as the royal family of Mercia did. For example, we have written records that the Huissa had their own royal dynasty separate from the Iklingos, who ruled over Mercia. What I mean there is that Mercia had their own dynasty, which included people like Penda. And then the Huissa had their own completely separate dynasty with a history just as long. Now the reason that's important is because we're not talking about puppet kings being installed, nor mere Mercian governors being placed in with the Huissa. But rather, it looks like they were continuing to be ruled by their own storied dynasty, just under the Mercians. And that looks very much like a buffer sub-kingdom rather than a true annexation. And that way, if, say, Wessex decided they wanted to attack Mercia, they'd have to go through the speed bump of fighting through these sub-kingdoms, which would give Mercia time to gather their warbands and fight down there, all the while protecting their real kingdom. So by upsetting that situation and raising the possibility of the Huissa becoming independent, Queen Osthrith wouldn't have just been damaging the stature and income of Mercia, she also would have been endangering the defenses of the core kingdom. In that circumstance, it does make sense that some of the nobility in this brutal era would have sought violent retribution, even against an old lady. But Mercia kept its hold on the satellite kingdoms, and Queen Osthrith was dead, and King Aethelred of Mercia was solidifying his kingdom's borders and ensuring its safety. And then, in 704, maybe because he was happy with the security of his kingdom and thought he couldn't do any more, King Aethelred abdicated, and he became a monk and the abbot of Bardney. That happens a lot, doesn't it? I wish we had more records regarding how this happened, why it happened, and whose idea the whole thing was. Especially this one, because he became the abbot of Bardney. Bardney wasn't even within Mercia, and Mercia had monasteries of its own. In fact, several of the monasteries were founded by Penda's kids and grandkids, Though, to be fair, it seems like the number of his daughters was almost infinite. They're worse than the Baldwins, so he probably had kids and grandkids in damn near every industry in Mercia. But, Penda's prolific past aside, the point is that even though Mercia had plenty of monasteries, King Aethelred retired to Bardney, which was located in the Kingdom of Lindsay. As you might remember, the Kingdom of Lindsay seems to have been the subject of many fights between Mercia and Northumbria, and the monks of Bardney were still a bit sore about that, going as far as to initially balk at the idea of holding the bones of King Oswald of Northumbria. 
But now, Lindsay had been detached from Northumbrian control. And here we have a Mercian king retiring to join their monastery. However, the relationship between the two kingdoms, Mercia and Lindsay, was still rather odd because we also see that the monks of Bardney did eventually accept Oswald's bones, and they also held the bones of Queen Osthrith, who was a princess of Northumbria. So Lindsay's position on whether or not it was pro-Mercian or pro-Northumbrian or neither at all is a bit hard to figure out. But what we're being told here is that Ethelred was retiring to the monastery that housed his wife's remains. And perhaps it was as simple as that. But you do have to wonder what the monks thought about all this, politically. Whatever the case, later in history we do see the monks of Bardney burying Ethelred and then revering both he and Queen Osthrith as saints. So it looks like, even though the monks were initially grouchy about all the fighting over their poor beleaguered kingdom, they must have warmed up eventually. So anyway, Ethelred is up there and presumably doing good work improving the political relations between Lindsay and Mercia. And upon his retirement, his nephew, Conred, son of Wolf Hera, took the throne. But even though Ethelred was retired, he looks like he was still rather involved in politics, even going so far as to summon King Conred to him and commanding him to make peace with Bishop Wilfred. You knew I was going to bring up Wilfred at some point. And, yep, I'm sure you are completely surprised that Wilfred has even managed to annoy the new King of Mercia. That guy was amazing. So, that's roughly what was going on in Mercia. They're basically developing a clever way to handle administration and defense through delegation, and appear to have been on friendly terms with the monks in Lindsay. And monasteries, as you might remember, would have been stacked with nobles. So you can guess that Mercia was probably on good terms with Lindsay in general, at least with the upper classes. And this would not have sat well at all with King Aldfrith of Northumbria. However, on the 14th of December in 704 or 705, King Aldfrith died after 19 or 20 years of rule. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle adds that he died at Driffield in East Riding of Yorkshire. But Aldfrith had some sons, so that's really good news. Typically, the family of Oswiu tends to die childless, but not Aldfrith, and the eldest boy was named Osred. He was young, only eight, but he was still old enough to rule, so he was next on the line of succession. So he would take the throne, right? Wrong. We're told that Aedwulf became king. Succession upsets like this would become more common in Northumbria as time went on, and actually, King Aldfrith was the last of the line of Ida to be secure in his position. After him, things were much more shaky. So anyway, now we have King Aedwulf. And I can almost hear you saying, Aedwulf? Who's that? Well, that's actually a very good question. And your guess is as good as mine. He looks like he was from a noble line, but exactly how he ties into this whole thing isn't entirely clear. And there are even notions that he might have been into Eirin noble. But ultimately, that's another thing we just don't know. One thing we do know is that Wilfred looked at this new king and intended to throw his support in with him. And this fact could explain why things were so tense between Wilfred and Oswiu's family. 
So going way back when we first introduced Wilfred, back when he was a young boy, do you remember who initially favored him? You know, when he was still living at Oswiu's court? It was Oswiu's queen, Queen Aenflade, the daughter of King Edwin of Deira. And that makes me wonder if Wilfred might have had Deiran sympathies. And for some time now, the Kingdom of Northumbria has been dominated by the Bernician royal line. And that could explain why he had conflicts with a variety of Northumbrian kings, but was still adamant that he wanted to control the entire bishopric of York. I mean, if he felt like he had the support of the ousted Deiran nobility, he might have felt secure enough to hold the bishopric even though most of the kings there hated him. It could also explain why he was marching around with an army for a while. So, Bishop Wilfred might be pro Deiran, and maybe this new king, King Aidwulf, was on the Deiran noble line, and that's why he decided he wanted to throw his lot in with him. And actually, Abbas Aelflaed, who will come into the story in a little bit, is another tie to this Deiran theory. Now, she was a major figure in this period because she was governing Whitby. As you might remember, Whitby was the site of the Synod where the English church rejected Celtic Christianity. Well, at that point, Whitby was governed by one of Edwin's relatives, Hild, and it's also where Edwin was interred and where his cult was based. So Whitby might have been rather pro Deiran, which could indicate that Abbas Aelflaed was close to the Deiran royal line. However, King Oswiu was also buried at Whitby, so it's hard to say exactly what's happening there, though that might have just been a reflection of Northumbrian politics, with the balance of Bernicia and Deira being a little bit mixed. And you might be wondering if there were members of the Deiran royal family in positions of power within Northumbria. And while we lack written evidence indicating whether or not there was, my guess is that there must have been. It's hard to completely eliminate a royal line, after all. So while Northumbria was now a single kingdom, there still might have been some political and cultural issues between the Deiran and Bernician populations, especially among the remaining nobility, with even abbeys being part of the royal power plays. And much of the issues with Wilfred could be the outward expressions of how not everyone was pleased with the Bernician domination of Northumbrian politics. Anyway, it's food for thought. But getting back to King Aidwulf of Northumbria. Remember how King Aldfrith's dying wish was that his successor reconcile with Wilfred? It looked like a smart political move to get the bishop on the side of young Osred. But apparently, Wilfred still had an axe to grind with the line of Oswiu. And so he went to King Aidwulf, who might have been to Erin, and tried to throw his support in with him. But King Aidwulf spurned him. That's pretty awkward. And now it looks like it wasn't just Oswiu's family who hated Wilfred. There was also the rival dynasty and the Mercians who were not overly pleased with this bishop. So meanwhile, Osred, son of Aldfrith, the eight-year-old heir to the throne, was at Bamborough, along with his supporters and a nobleman by the name of Bertfrith. And actually, Bertfrith might have been the son of one of Egfrith's Pictish noble supporters. So this was a family affair that might have stretched into multiple kingdoms. Anyway, so they were there encamped probably with their war bands. And it was looking like they weren't going to abandon the kingdom to Aidwulf. The throne was still in play. So spurned by the new Northumbrian king, Wilfred went to Osred's camp, tail probably tucked 
and came to terms with the young prince. According to one source, he even became Osred's adopted father. We aren't given much detail regarding what happened next, but we hear that in 706, Osred was now the king of Northumbria, and Aedwulf was dead. I'm not sure how that happened, but it happened. And so Osred held his first council. And of course, the matter of Wilfred had to be discussed. You cannot have a council in this era without Wilfred showing up and making it all about him. He's the medieval equivalent of a drama addict. No matter what you're talking about, you know that in the end, you're going to end up talking about his problems. So of course, Wilfred really only had one thing on his mind. He wanted the Bishopric of York reunited. And of course, he wanted to be in charge of it. And Abbas Aelflaed and Bertfrith both spoke in favor of Wilfred's request. Considering that King Osred owed quite a bit to both of them, not to mention to Wilfred himself, they must have been quite convincing. In fact, Stephanus points out that Osred really was only able to rule through the support of individuals like Abbas Aelflaed and Bishop Wilfred. So really, this does seem like a done deal, right? I mean, you've got three of the most powerful characters in the region, all unified, talking to a king who is now only 10 years old. But the king held strong. And you can almost imagine how flabbergasted Wilfred must have been. His life's work has been to get this region back. He's taken multiple trips to Rome, he's survived shipwrecks, battle, seizures, and he's outlived every son of Oswiu. And here he had the major figures in Northumbrian politics, not to mention the dying wish of the king's father, all on his side, and still he can't get the bishopric back. Not only that, but he couldn't go running back to Mercia because now the new king of Mercia wasn't exactly a fan of his. I'm surprised that Wilfred didn't have another seizure right there from the sheer stress and disappointment. But King Osred threw the old priest a bone, and he allowed Wilfred to hold Ripon and Hexham. Now the king's decision here might have been due to family politics, or really any other number of reasons, but I can't help but wonder if he was beginning to show traits that he would become later known for in his life. See, records indicate that he was regarded as a wild and irreligious king who treated his vassals as enemies, and killed many nobles and forced others to enter monasteries. What we're seeing here is that Osred might have been a king in the model of his grandfather, and he might have been showing hints of exactly how ruthless he was going to become. Given our records, it seems like he was even harsher than his grandfather, with both Bede and Bishop Boniface placing the reign of Osred as the beginning of the abuses of the church in Northumbria. So for the Game of Thrones fans out there, this is our Joffrey Baratheon and it may have been clear to his vassals at his very first council. Basically, he might have been just saying to them, don't mess with me. We're not friends. I'm your liege, and my word is law. And if that's the case, you must have been a scary king. Even at ten. On the other hand, Osred was a minor when he first came to the throne, so you have to wonder if he could be really blamed for the early changes in policies. 
Stephanus says that Abbas Aelflaed and Bishop Wilfrid had the king's ear, so it makes me wonder how things ended up rough for the Christian establishment when two of the major supporters of the new king were major figures in the church, you know? But maybe they weren't the only people in the king's inner circle who had influence. If the young king could be swayed, I can imagine that nobles with Bernician or Deiran loyalties might have been trying to direct the king's bloodlust towards each other and also against any church members with the wrong family allegiances. Which could account for how brutal this period was. Or maybe he was just a bit brutal right from the beginning, and he did it all on his own. Regardless, the elevation of a child to the throne is an interesting move for Northumbria, and it strikes me as rather desperate. You could see it as a reflection of the prestige of the line of Ida, but the fact that a 10-year-old could hold the throne makes you wonder how many kinsmen were left on the line. There just might not have been all that many who had standing to challenge his claim. For example, we saw the sons of Oswiu die in rapid succession with only Aldfrith leaving an heir. Seriously, out of four sons, only the illegitimate youngest son was able to produce an heir to the throne. And then he died while the boy was still a minor. And Oswiu had personally ensured that some of the line of Ida was pruned away. And who knows how many countless nobles were also lost in battle. There are so many things that were going wrong here all at once in Northumbria that it's starting to look a little bit like Scottish history. And I know, I'm sorry Scotland, but you guys have the worst luck. And so Northumbria, to me, looks like a crowning crisis. And spoiler alert... Most of the Northumbrian rulers are going to have a hell of a rough time of it from this point forward. Okay, so that's basically what's happening right now in Northumbria. Back to Mercia. So in 709, King Aethelred of Mercia, now Abbot Aethelred of Bardney, had died. And he had at least one son, Cholred. Now here's where things get a little bit fun in the Heptarchy, because the current king of Mercia is Conred, son of Wolfhera who is the cousin of Cholred, son of Aethelred. Conred and Cholred. Isn't this fun? So, in 709, King Conred, son of Wolfhera, abdicated the throne so he could go on a pilgrimage to Rome. And he abdicated it to Cholred, son of Aethelred. Oh, and as a bonus, there's also a Cholwald, who might have been a son of Aethelred, who might have reigned as a king after Cholred. Seriously, my sanity is clinging by a thread at this point, and I think that the chroniclers might have just been trolling us. But the point is that things are a bit messy in Mercia right now, and the takeaway is that there might have been a bit of unrest growing in Mercia, at least amongst the nobility, as the line of Penda was starting to lose its prestige, and the dynasty was starting to develop cracks. But, during this same time, it does seem that Wilfred finally managed to reconcile with the Mercian crown, because we're told that by 710, in his Middle Anglian monastery of Undal, Wilfred died. And it looks like he died of old age. How on earth is that possible? It's like Oswiu dying peacefully. I just feel robbed here. I feel like he should have died on another trip to the Pope to complain about something, or maybe raising an army and leading against Northumbria, or something, anything. But no, he died in his monastery, having never managed to regain the Bishopric of York. Oh well, 
And on that same year, something interesting happened in Northumbria. We're told that the Venerable Bede actually played a role in ending the fighting between the English and the Picts that had been raging for decades. Seriously, Bede got involved. And I find that crazy to see the man who is basically responsible for us knowing most of the history of this era actually playing an active role in developing that history. That's nuts. But it's what happened. See, what happened here is that Necton IV, the king of the Picts, sent an envoy to monk Wermuth and Jero, asking for some advice on church matters. And then the envoy returned with a letter written by Bede. And that began a friendly relationship that was maintained all the way through to the time when Bede finished his Historia. And it wasn't just a friendly relationship between Necton and Bede. Like, things started to calm down between Northumbria and the Picts. Now, that peace wasn't instantaneous. The letter wasn't sent off and immediately everything stopped. And a year after the initial letter was sent, we're told that an elder man named Bjortfrith defeated a Pictish army in the central plain of Scotland near the Middle Forth. Now, this probably stopped further Pictish advances south, and it might have been their version of Necton's Mera. It might have been a total disaster. So perhaps both kingdoms had just grown tired of losing their young men and nobility in battle. Or maybe simply having a friendly pen-pal relationship between the king of the Picts and Bede had led to a soothing of the tensions and a greater degree of understanding between the two kingdoms. Stranger things have happened. So that's kind of an odd thing that's happening up in Northumbria. But things really got interesting up there in 716, when Joffrey, I, I mean King Osred of Northumbria, was murdered at about the age of 20. And Bede recorded it without comment. And silence from a historian is about the biggest condemnation anyone could receive. And actually, when Boniface finally started writing about him, he spoke of King Osred as a worthless youth who led an evil life and violated the privileges of the Northumbrian church. So that doesn't sound good. And seriously, Bede, who is usually glowing about Northumbrian rulers, says almost nothing at all. So apparently this was not a guy who was well-loved. And then Osred was replaced by King Chenred, who seemed to have a family linked to Ida, but from the looks of it, he was only distantly related to Osred and the ruling dynasty that dominated Northumbria for years. So how the hell did he end up in power? And also, what did Osred's younger brother, Osric, think about this? Well, if Osric was upset, he wasn't bothered too long because two years later, in 718, Osric took the throne. And strangely, he appointed Chilwulf, the brother of the former king Chenred, as his own successor. So there's a couple things here. First, it looks like we probably have at least two families that are warring, and in an attempt to stop that bloodshed, Osric is naming a member of the other rival dynasty as his successor which would be a smart political move. But something else you might be wondering is what is up with these Northumbrian kings not having kids and heirs of their own? Seriously, almost none of them are having kids. What exactly is going on up there? I bet we can guess what isn't going on up there. But maybe they just didn't have time because things were really unstable. In fact, they were so bad that Bede looked back with nostalgia to the stability of the 7th century. 
You know, those really easy years where Aethelfrith tried to wipe out the Deiran dynasty, and King Oswiu was killing family members as fast as possible, and Northumbria was pretty much constantly at war with its neighbors. You know, the golden years. Well, that's how bad things were getting in the 8th century. Bede was stunned at how the nobility in Northumbria was getting consumed by rivalries, and when he looked into the future, it seems that he was filled with a certain amount of worry, and possibly even dread. We aren't given a ton of detail, as usual, so we can't see all the different conspiracies and violence that was plaguing Northumbrian politics. We can just see the shadows of it, and we occasionally get the highlights when someone really important gets murdered. But what we're seeing in Northumbria is that the kingdom was becoming racked with internal conflict. Kings were coming under attack, and the unfortunate sons of kings, known as Aethelings, and any other candidates for the throne were also under attack. This could be one reason why we're seeing so many kings die without heirs. Northumbria was a murderous mess. When one king took the throne, he often immediately set out to exterminate any rival heirs of the previous king. For example, King Aidbert, who we'll hear about in a little bit, went as far as besieging the monastery at Lindisfarne in 750, and he dragged out Aldfrith's last surviving son, Offa. So even as a monk, the scion of a rival dynasty was not safe. To give you a brief summary of how awful the 8th century was for the Northumbrian nobility, Here's what we've got. We have four rulers murdered, six rulers deposed and forced into exile or into monasteries, two rulers who appear to have resigned willingly, and then there are two that have eerily short reigns, and while it isn't stated that they were murdered or forced out, it really is a bit suspicious. And this became pretty much a standard, with the throne changing hands every few years. And so I start to wonder how much of the nobility was left at the end of this period. They were going through kings at a frightening rate. And even with all the external fighting, murder, and bloody palace intrigue of the 7th century, Bede was probably right. Compared to the 8th century, those were the halcyon days. So Northumbria is looking less like a kingdom and more like Chicago in the 1930s. Everybody is getting a new pair of cement shoes. And part of the reason for this could be that there wasn't a clear claim to the throne anymore. For as brutal as Aethelfrith and Oswiu were, they did establish a pretty clear claim to the throne, and they eliminated their rivals, at least as best as they could. And so that was pretty good, at least for their line. But it all started to fall apart when Oswiu's firstborn son died without a child. In fact, all his sons, except for his bastard son, died without children. So the claim became a bit more muddied, and other families seemed to have stepped in and tried to make a claim for themselves. And so now, when you look at 8th century Northumbrian politics, it seems like much of the bloodshed comes from the fact that you have five main families in Northumbrian royal politics, and they all seem to have been trying to claim power, and of course, take the throne. What we're talking about here are the families of Aldfrith, Cholwulf, Aidbert, who was Cholwulf's cousin, Ethelwold Maul, Allred, and Earwolf. And all of the families, except for the families of Ethelwold Maul and Earwolf, had clearly claimed to be on the line of Ida. Whether or not the families of Earwolf and Ethelwold Maul were isn't really known. 
So yeah, things are getting really ugly right now in Northumbria, and it's kind of devolving into just a complete mess. And looking at the digs, this internal warfare was not doing them any favors economically. In the prior century, the Northumbrians were relatively rich. At least the rulers and the warbands were. And why wouldn't they be? They were running around and nicking everyone else's stuff. Not only that, but they were also able to gain tribute from kingdoms who really didn't want to have to fight them anymore. Being bullies had really paid off, at least in the short term. Though it does seem like they lost their taste for external warfare after Necton's Mera. And that does make sense. They lost not just their king, but also a massive portion of their army in that fight. It would take a long time to get back to fighting weight after a defeat like that, even if they wanted to. And to make matters worse, the kings were also getting less powerful. Following the Synod of Whitby, Bookland was becoming more fashionable in Northumbria. And that was a major reduction in royal power. Before Bookland, all the land was the king's, and he would just let you use it at his leisure. But Bookland meant that the land was actually yours, not the king's. It's basically a medieval deed. So upon your death, the land didn't revert to the crown, but instead, it went to your heirs. The king's land was being divested, and in an era where we're talking about a food economy, land equaled wealth. So this shift towards bookland meant that the king was becoming less powerful. Not only that, but the members of the church were getting more worldly as well. They were traveling to other monasteries and religious houses throughout Christendom. And overall, that is a pretty good thing, but it created a few headaches for the king. Due to their travels, they started to see how other kingdoms were granting land. And often, other kingdoms were granting more land to the church than the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Now that's a problem. See, there's a funny thing about primates. Studies have shown that primates gain a lot of happiness from having something that's just a little bit better than everyone else. We're status-oriented creatures. It isn't the standards that we seem to be focused upon, but rather the comparison. You can have a human or any primate be relatively happy living in a pit in the ground, provided it's the nicest pit in the ground. So here we have the monks and other clergy going across the channel and finding out that they weren't doing as well as many of their continental brethren. And that would not do. Now it doesn't look like it mattered all that much that they were doing better than the commoners in Northumbria because that's not who they were competing with. The issue was that other foreign monks were doing better than they were and that was causing them to become rather dissatisfied with the amount of land that they were being given. So naturally, they wanted more. And as they acquired it, that meant even less land for the king. And I guess all this book land really wasn't that terrible of an idea. For example, the church goes to the trouble of building a big monastery. That should be theirs. But without book land, an unscrupulous king could say, well, that's very nice. And I'm going to take that land back now. Oh, and hey, I now have a really nice monastery, which will function as my new summer home. Oh, and it already has a charming name too, Downton Abbey. Bonus. So to stop that sort of thing from happening, the church convinced the kings that the land was to be granted in perpetuity via bookland. So overall, it's a pretty solid solution to the problem. But 
This was also noticed by the nobility. And so they wanted Bookland as well. Not just because they wanted the nicest pit in the ground, but also because it was actually pretty useful. After all, they were also building things on the land and didn't want the king to just be able to take it away if he had a bad day or he wanted a new estate. And they didn't just want Bookland. They wanted the bigger grants of Bookland, just like the church was getting. However, they couldn't just come out and demand it. The thing is that Bookland was something specifically for the church. So it would be like wanting religious tax breaks if you weren't part of the church. It's just not done. But never underestimate the magnetic draw that comes from freebies. This was a good deal. And they were going to do whatever they needed to in order to acquire it. So the nobles started asking for grants of bookland, ostensibly for the building of religious institutions. And then they just never quite got around to building those institutions. Oh yeah, your highness, we're making really good progress, but we're still in the planning stage. You know how it goes with contractors, but we will break ground next year. Maybe. All in all, it wasn't too bad of a way to get around it. And functionally, that meant that the nobility were starting to get the same privileges as the church. So towards the end of the 7th century, we see a rapid transfer of land, wealth, and power from the king's hand and into the hands of the nobility and the church. The era of super Anglo-Saxon Bill Gates was coming to an end in Northumbria. And as a consequence, it seems like it was becoming increasingly hard for monarchs to keep the throne and their lives with so many rivals all around them, licking their chops. The thing is that the nobility and their function within the kingdom was changing. In the 7th century, we hear of the nobility riding around with the king and even saving his life, as was the case when an assassin tried to kill King Edwin on Easter while his daughter was being born. Remember that? I'm still stunned at how awful the timing was on that deal. Anyway, in the 7th century, you had thanes close to the king, riding around with him, protecting him, feasting with him, all that kind of stuff. And not only that, but they were closely bound to his wealth. The king was the giver of rings. Their bling came from the king's largesse. The land they lived on was a temporary grant from him, and they relied on his feasts to keep them fed. The royal entourage might have provided the king with a better hold on power and might have acted as bodyguards, but they relied on the king to survive as much as he relied on them. But that symbiotic relationship was starting to break down. The nobles weren't reliant the way they had been in the earlier decades. And now we're reading of nobles being wealthy enough to invite church luminaries to their own estates. And they aren't riding with the king. They're staying home and handling matters there. You might remember from one of the earlier episodes when I talked about kingship in the early Anglo-Saxon era and said how it was largely built upon personality and consensus. Kings were kings because all the nobles allowed that to happen. So the king worked to keep the nobles happy, and the nobles worked to stay in the king's good graces in order to continue to hold their lands. But now the nobles had their own land that didn't require them to keep the king happy. It was theirs regardless of whether or not the king was having a good day. And not only that, but they weren't cementing those close bonds with the king that they had done in earlier years. If they weren't riding with them, then they weren't feasting with them. 
and they might have started to wonder, what made this king so special in the first place? And maybe they should be king. So things were changing in Northumbria. And now, rather than going outside their kingdom and bringing wealth back home, following their defeat, it seems like the Northumbrian nobility largely kept their thirst for war and booty within their own borders. And internal strife can be pretty expensive. If you're an effective warlike nation, especially in this era, war can be pretty profitable. You can gain tribute from defeated kingdoms, booty from the battlefield, and you can also ransack various wealthy settlements. All of this would bring wealth back to your own kingdom. But internal strife weakens the standing army of the kingdom and results in the loss of manpower. And if things spill out into the general population, it can also result in damaged infrastructure, crops, and all that kind of stuff. So things in Northumbria were pretty rough. The tributes had ended, the war booty had come to an end, and the nobility were fighting amongst themselves. And there, with both Northumbria and Mercia suffering from significant internal problems, we're going to bring this episode to an end. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, all that kind of stuff. And you can find links to all of it at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Oh, and Nana's doing much better. Thanks to everyone who's asking. Okay, thanks for listening. <laughs>